As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up on the Audible today, Myron Roll, former Florida State defensive back, Rhodes Scholar, future president of the United States, that and much more on the Audible. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman. It is Tuesday morning as we tape, and once again, my buddy Stu Mandel is a no-show. I don't know what's going on. He said he's not feeling well after that the March Madness experience this past weekend has got him under the weather. But we have another excellent fill-in. Actually, it's a superior fill-in. He is Myron Roll. You probably remember him as the former Florida State defensive back turned Rhodes Scholar. Myron, are you officially a doctor yet, or has that not happened yet? Uh, not yet. May 20th, when graduation starts uh, or happens, uh, then you can call me Dr. Roll, but you can always call me Myron. You know, that's, that's all right. It's okay. Yeah, I feel like we go back a little bit. So. <laughs> um, so let's let's get to you've been in the news a lot in the last week when uh, you had posted on Twitter that you're going to be uh, – transitioning to Harvard Med, right? And so explain to people who maybe have remembered you as a player, remembered, you know, reading about you, uh, hearing about you as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, now going into neurosurgery. So what's the update with you from a uh, professional sense? Yeah, so I always wanted to do neurosurgery. It's been a dream of mine for a long time. Actually, even before I wanted to play professional football, I read Ben Carson's book, Gift of Hands, and he planted the seed in my mind to do that. And uh, then I went to medical school after I was finished with the Steelers um, in 2013. And after that first year of medical school, I had a chance to go up to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with a, a pediatric neurosurgeon there named Jay Storm. And together we did a bunch of cranial cases, spinal deformities cases, ventricular peritoneal shunts for kids with big heads, hydrocephalus. So that really cemented that I wanted to do neurosurgery and specifically pediatric neurosurgery. So last week, as a fourth-year medical student, uh, all fourth-year medical students find out where they've matched on March 17th, and I found out that I matched into neurosurgery at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard, uh, and that was my number one choice. I interviewed at about 14 different places, uh, from Hopkins to UVA to Yale to Brigham and Women's to Mayo Clinic, Vanderbilt, but uh, I, I landed on on Harvard and Mashen because um, it was a great place. Uh, the residents, I get along really well with them, and the chairman, Bob Carter, uh, has a great vision for the program. So I'm very excited and uh, super pumped to uh, 
spend the next seven years up in Boston and learning neurosurgery, doing cases, and hopefully advancing the field forward. So get into match day a little bit. Is it literally do you become like the top pick in the draft kind of thing? I mean, for football terms, or is it a little more of a – you don't know what factors are, are at play and how the different hospitals are going to pick the residents. Yeah, so it's it's a bit like the draft, you know. I mean, you do do the different interviews and, like, you go to the combine and you go through the different interviews uh, during that time as well. And, uh, you know, you, you communicate with the programs that you like and they communicate with you. And, you know, there's some, um, you know, there's some cheeky, you know, communication going back and forth and just trying to kind of gauge where you kind of fit. But no one is allowed to say that they are ranking you number one or number two or number three. And then we are, but we are allowed to say if we want to rank a program number one. I told Mass Gen that I was going to rank them number one. So I, I knew that's where I wanted to be, but you're not really sure until you get that letter on the day and you open it up and it says, congratulations, you've matched uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it reminded me of the drafts. The draft, I had a little um, less stress because I just wanted to go anywhere. But here, I really wanted to go to Mass Gen because it's a commitment. It's binding. It's seven years. You can't move. You're there. You commit yourself to this seven-year program. Uh, and I wanted it to be the place where I wanted to go. So I'm glad that it worked out for sure. I know you're from New Jersey, but you spent a lot of time in the, in the South. What happens if you end up hating uh, the cold weather of the Northeast can you, you said it's binding. You can't transfer out or anything like that? Or? No, no, I'm staying right there, yeah. But the, the cold weather, I just have to buy enough scarves and, and, and try to be around uh, some indoor places that have uh, have good good heating. But, you know, when I joke with the residents up there now, they're telling me, hey, you're going to be in the hospital so much that you won't even feel the cold too much except when you go home, which is going to be late at night anyway. And then when you got to wake up back up in the morning, you'll feel it again. But um, so, yeah, it, it'll be all right. I'm excited. I'm fired up. It's a great place. It's one of the best hospitals, if not the best hospital in the country. And uh, like I said, I wanted to do pediatric neurosurgery. So Boston Children's is right down the street. And uh, the opportunities there are, are limitless, too. How much do you think, if at all, did it help you get chosen here about you know your profile. I mean, you got to be one of the most famous med students in the country, not just because you were a you know a football player at a high level, but also Rhodes Scholar. You know, people have seen you on TV, they've heard you, they're familiar with you. I mean, was that? Do you think that's a how much of a factor, if at all, was that in you getting kind of this this high profile status? I, I think I think it helps for sure, and uh, I didn't shy away from it because it was a part of my story. It made me unique. Uh, you know, there are other applicants and. Um, in the neurosurgery process who were, um, you know, teachers for a long time or they have done some incredible research uh, in some, you know, cutting-edge uh, sort of topics. So they brought their unique skill set. And, you know, I brought my football and road scholarship background, and it uh, definitely behooved me. Uh, when I sat down for the different interviews at the different hospitals that I interviewed, uh, a lot of times, you know, they asked me, how do you think football has helped you? Um, or how will it help you now in neurosurgery? And my answer often was, you know, football taught me to be tough. Playing for Bobby Bowden, Mickey Andrews, uh, these are tough Southern, you know, you, you, you have to hit. You have to know how to be hit, know how to hit, know how to go through tough days. And there are going to be tough days in neurosurgery that um, inevitably will come. Football taught me how to work with the team, how to communicate, how to strategize, how to overcome adversity, how to prepare. Just as I prepared for... Um, playing against Tim Tebow at the University of Florida and C.J. Spiller at Clemson, I have to prepare for a cranial tumor or an aneurysm or a spinal deformity case by looking at CT scans, MRIs, 
eyes uh, and, and getting the patient history and different things like that. So I, I honestly believe that this next chapter, chapter of my life has been prepared uh, my whole life. I've been preparing for my whole life through football. It's been, it's been really good. When you're talking about surgery as it is, I would think you have to be you know, at the highest level of focus. For a lot of t- a lot of times we talk about athletes, it's like how long can they stay focused in the moment or you know concentrate. And I you know talked to football coaches who've talked about how that is a talent, much like you know explosiveness and change of direction and different physical things are. Is that something you've been able to heighten, or from your process coming through med school and the ability to stay mentally focused? Because it is obviously it's way more critical than a blown assignment in a football game. Yeah, it could give up a touchdown, but obviously, what's at stake with what you're doing now is is way more significant. How have you gone through that process, and what have you kind of what's been ingrained in you to kind of heighten that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the discipline and the focus. In uh, neurosurgery, uh, and even in you know the most quote unquote bread and butter cases, um, doing a lumbar fusion for you know a one level lumbar fusion for somebody who has chronic back pain or maybe has some neurological symptoms, shooting pains or numbness tingling down um, their leg, uh, you know the focus needs to be there because you're having a patient who is submitting themselves to you and to the team uh, and want you to do the best they you can for them and it's your responsibility to do no harm and to treat them with the utmost care and with quality care and so the focus has to be there it really does it's expensive real estate you're working with you know one false step this way or that way you can get to an artery that can cause bleeding which can compromise the whole case you know one move left or right or up or down uh, you may you know um, know, hit a part of the, the brain that's um, may provide some sort of deficit once they wake up, you know, a speech deficit or, or something like that. And that's, and that's difficult. It's difficult to explain. It's difficult to do. But uh, it's a privilege. It's an honor that, uh, to, to be able to work on someone's brain and spine. And the discipline and focus that football has given me uh, has definitely gone up a level now. And, 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 you know, the things that I did before when I played football as an athlete uh, to maintain that discipline, you know, praying, somebody who's, who's going to be working on the brain, obviously CTE and the impacts that football has had on, on many former players is in the news a lot and has been for the last few years. When you see some of these stories, especially I feel like, you know, every few months you'll see one that's very impactful from like a real sports or something where it's a former player and you see them on a, some kind of monitor where they no longer can speak. And, you know, the only way able to communicate is through, you know, one of these machines, which kind of like they almost have to spell the words out with their with their eyes. Uh, when you see stuff like that, and you hear people talk about maybe a lot, you know, two generations from now, a lot more parents won't be willing to let their kids play football because of the risks. How do you square it with with the field you're in, and as well as the world you've come from? Yes. So uh, it's it's hard. It's hard to explain um, those very sad and unfortunate cases that you mentioned. Um, football has given so much to me. 
and other players like me. As I mentioned, it gave me those lessons and traits that I'm using now as, as a physician, um, as a future leader, as a future husband and father one day. You know, football has given me a lot. It's given me friends and networks and an education to Florida State and ability to travel and, frankly, a platform to advocate for issues that matter. When I go into a classroom of young kids and, and they, you know, rattle off my uh, – my resume, they'll say road scholarship, the kids won't know that. They'll say neurosurgeon, oh, maybe we know that, but football player, oh my gosh, it's a big deal. So, you know, football has given me a lot. And But, but now you, you're hearing more awareness or, or more stories about traumatic brain injury and its possible link to uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and some of these effects that it's having on, on players. My, you know, my, my stance is, I love the game of football. I don't want it to go. I think there needs to be measures that we need to do to preserve the game. And whether that's reducing the number of snaps so that we have less opportunities for players to, um, you know, to experience concussions or, or brain injury, uh, whether it's having more independent neurosurgeons, neuropsychologists, neurologists on the sideline with no fealty to the team, completely objective and examining patients just because they want to examine that patient and do the best they possibly can for that patient. Uh, whether it's reducing the culture of um, violent hits that are shown on highlights and emphasizing more of the fundamentals of the game, blocking, tackling, passing, kicking, these things that sometimes go unnoticed because they don't create as many oohs and ahs from fans that watch. You know, uh, more concussion research, money into concussion research and trying to get more specialties involved in figuring this stuff out. I don't want the game to stop. I want the game to be preserved, but I think it can be played at a safer level. And if you do that, then I think parents may be more inclined to allow their kids to uh, to play because the sport is so great, and we don't want it to go away because uh, it's done so much for me and, and others like me. When you see some other like former NFL legends talk about if they had to do it all over again, they they might not let their child play football. Knowing what you know, uh, and obviously you, you said you you know you don't have children yet, but let's say you do have a son, would you be okay with letting him play football? I would. I'd be okay, but there'd be conditions. I need to know that the coach who will be coaching him, uh, he or she, will uh, will focus on fundamentals and won't do the typical bowl in the ring that we used to do as, as young kids where we just stand in the middle of the, 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 the circle and they call out a name and then players run from anywhere just trying to lay you out in the middle of the circle to develop toughness, so to speak. So those drills will be completely eliminated. I need to know that the, the equipment that my son will be wearing will be, will be good as well. I wore a helmet that had extra airbags kind of in my head helmet, and it was bigger, uh, and that protected me, I believe, and, and, and it, it didn't give me a, a false sense of security, but it did give me um, a sense of um, a, a knowledge that I, I'm doing the most I can before I got onto the field uh, to protect this, this organ that I want to use for medical school and for my patients later as a neurosurgeon. Uh, so, yes, I would let my son play, but there had to be conditions. Um, going in to know that the game will be played at a safe level. Uh, because, again, I, I would hate to rob my son of that opportunity to um, to experience something that is so great and can impact his life for so much. I think there's nothing like being knocked down on a football field and then getting back up and saying, you know what, i got to play the next play. That's a microcosm for life. There's hurdles and obstacles and challenges we go through where you will get knocked down. And then successful people brush themselves off and get back up. But unsuccessful people say, oh, it's too hurts too much. Oh, woe is me. It, I can't get through it. And they stay on 
the ground, and they don't play the next play. So if my son can learn that, uh, that would be fantastic. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit. So we go way back. I've known you. I went back and looked. I think I did a story on you at ESPN Magazine. It started working on it when you were like a junior in high school, and the story eventually came out. And, uh, you know, I remember... You, your family was nice enough to invite me to you were uh, you were a recipient of the Watkins Award, which at the time I wasn't very familiar with it. It had only been around, I want to say, like maybe a half dozen years. Right. Um, and so I went, we went down somewhere in, uh, I want to say it was in Atlantic City. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Ben Carson. Uh, he was, he was not there, right, at the award, but they discussed his... Uh, his life. And, and I was like, I remember Googling, or I don't even know if it was Google. I remember doing like internet searches to read more about him. Um, it's very interesting to look back and see, I mean, he was an idol of yours, right? Growing up. Yes, absolutely. Un- un- unequivocally. He was, uh, he was my man. I read his book, Gifted Hands in fifth grade. And that, uh, planted the seed of neurosurgery in my mind, uh, seeing somebody who looked like me and came from a similar family background as me, had parents that focused on education like my mommy and daddy did. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was the, the academic hero. He was the, um, the standard that I was trying to reach once, uh, once football was done. Was it a little surreal for you to see him, you know, running for president, you know, whatever it was the decade later from that? You know, it, it, uh, I kind of had an idea that he was going to run for president because, uh, you know, I think he mentioned it to me uh, a few times when we had a chance to meet. I went to uh, Manassas, Virginia, and spent some time with him, golfed with him, and ate with him, went to church, and all these things. And uh, his speeches that he gave when I was around him uh, were more political in nature than medicine or inspirational in nature. And then the books that he started to write were more political in nature than the inspirational ones that he, were, he was writing earlier. And uh, so I kind of had an idea that he was going to do it. I kind of wish that he had not done it uh, for my own selfish reasons because it's hard to see somebody who has been your academic hero you know, get punched uh, and, and beat up in the media. Whether you're on the left or the right or the center, you know, people will take shots at you for positions or comments that you make. And it's, it's hard to see somebody that you looked up to for that long uh, take that sort of vitriol and, and criticism. So, uh, yeah, he ran um, and he obviously didn't win, and now he's at HUD. And um, yes, he wrote a letter for me for my neurosurgery application. So we stay in touch, and his wife is um, incredibly sweet. She's always been amazing to me. What did he say in the letter of recommendation? So I deferred um, my uh, ability to read his letter. Uh, so I, I, I went through the system and said, no, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see any of my letters of recommendation. Um, it, it gives the letter more strength when you don't see it, um, you know, in the eyes of the programs that you, that you look at. So I'm not sure what he said, but from what um, the interviewers told me, they said that, uh, you know, he said some very nice things about me. And that was one of the first questions that always came up in the interview. First one was, hey, Ben Carson said some really great things about you. He thinks you're going to be the future. And then the next question was, you know, how did, how does football help, uh, help you and how will it help you in neurosurgery? Who else did you have write letters for you? I had um, Jay Storm, Dr. Jay Storm. He's the uh, pediatric neurosurgeon up at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He wrote one for me. Then I had Dr. John Robinson. He is a, um, a neurosurgeon down in Stewart, Florida. Uh, so I had him as well. And then I had Dr. Robert Warren. He uh, used to be the chair of neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. He just recently stepped down from that post. But uh, So I had four neurosurgeons write me, uh, write me letters. No Mickey Andrews, huh? Not, no, not no, 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 no. I'm not sure how much uh, 
you know, neurosurgeons at, you know, Yale would, would, would hold weight on Mickey Andrews. They may never watch the Florida State football game. <laughs> not sure. By the way, I was at the Combine a couple of weeks ago. I ran into your old friend, John Lilly. Oh, Lilly Dog. Yeah, yeah. That's the man. That's the man. He's uh, with the Rams now? He is. He's out here, out here in California. So, um, you know, it was crazy. I went back and looked at that story. Um, by the way, you were the one who kind of severed my relationship with Tom Lemming. I got along with them pretty good to that story, and then it went out the window. Uh, it was interesting because if Bob Stoops coached at Michigan, you would have been a Michigan Wolverine, right? I, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Um, I really had a great relationship with Bob Stoops. Not that I didn't have a great relationship with Bobby Bowden or anyone else, but from freshman year, he was the first person to offer me a football scholarship, and he saw something in me that he said he saw in Rod Woodson. That's huge uh, praise to receive. I uh, went out there, as, a, as you know, as a kid from South Jersey, um, suburbs of Atlantic City, Bahamian parents, Bahamian roots, and didn't know anything about really Oklahoma football or that, kind of, that brand of football in that area. But uh, I impressed, and he pulled me aside and, and uh, said, hey, you know, we want to offer you a scholarship. And I was like, what? And then when all the kids who were in my group at that camp were like, hey, Bob Stoops, talk to you. What do you say? I said, well, you offered me a scholarship. They were going bananas. And to me, I was like, this is a big deal, I guess. And they were like, going, they were like, wow, this is unbelievable. And um, Bob, the funny story, another funny story with that is Bob Stoops gave my father his card. And then as we were driving back to New Jersey, uh, Daddy drives pretty fast, so he got stopped by a police officer for speeding. And he told, he told the guy, said, well, why are you here in Norman? And Daddy said, well, you know, my son just got an offer from Bob Stoops. He was at the camp. And the guy was like, really, Bob Stoops? And then Daddy gave him the card, and the guy, like, let us go. So, you know, we, did, we just got off with a warning and didn't have to pay any money. So thanks, Bob Stoops, for, uh, for getting us off um, of that speeding ticket. But uh, I guess it just tells you the enormity of Sooner football in that area. But, uh, yeah, he's a great man, and he's somebody, even after I committed to Florida State, I still will call Bob Stoops and, you know, say hi to him and, you know, check up on him. He'll check up on me, so we still have a good, good relationship. Yeah, I remember that whole process, you know, and then it was like, this is the quote you gave. Uh, no, I'm not going to read the, quote, <laughs> the the Charlie Weiss quote, but um, <laughs> how long were you on the Knight Commission for on, on intercollegiate athletics? and had that kind of, you know, stroke, what would you, what, what do you think most needs addressing? Uh, oh, well, I think it's the pay, paying at college athletes, um, you know, not making them millionaires 
and I'm not exactly sure the mechanism behind doing it, but I definitely think that um, you know providing uh, more resources for them to be able to focus on school and be able to focus on their sport. You know, I've thankfully had you know two great parents. Been married. They're married now for 45 years. They worked. They were hard working, coming from the Bahamas, and you know we were middle class or maybe you know low middle class, and uh, we were okay. But several, several, several of my teammates at FSU, coming from Carroll City, Liberty City, Miami, Opelika, Inner City, Orlando, Polk County, like these are some really rough areas where they're now the main breadwinners of their families. They have to spend money, their scholarship money, back home, and so that that takes food from their plate. And they have to send money back home to support their family who's not working or on the street or in jail or something like that. And then that opens up the opportunity for these runners or agents to come in and provide, you know, services to these players, which may make them ineligible or just may compromise them in the future because now they have to go with this agent that they really don't want to go with, which may, you know, affect their future drafts. Like, there's so much that goes into it if and only if the NCAA, in my opinion, said, you know what? We are just going to try to remedy this as best we possibly can. We're making a lot of money from college sports. March Madness, I'm sure, is making billions of dollars right now. TV is making money. School apparel, uh, you know, license agreements and all these things are making money. Local governments are making money. But these players, these players who are, you know, a lot of them are struggling. A lot of them are first-generation college students. Um, you know, they're trying, they're, they can get, you know, at least a bit of this. Uh, you know, profit. I just think that's absurd. So that would be the stroke of the pen. That would be my executive order as President Donald Trump would say. To be honest, it's a really complicated issue because I remember when we talked about this back when I was at ESPN.com and I, you know, we did a story about it. I said to you, you were at Florida State, you know, do you, at that point, do you pay, let's say, the track athletes too? And I think, I don't know if this is still the case, but Florida State's, that was the, like the, at the time the most successful, it was more successful than basketball. This is before Jimbo kind of got things ramped up with football again. So you're like, of course you got to pay, you know, they're the ones who are, because it's not like football is the only one who works long hours. You know, those other sports, the, the sports that are kind of the non-revenue cranking sports, the ones that are really not on the big TV contract sides, you know, those, it's a... Look, I didn't disagree with you at all. I just don't know how you do it. And and does that mean do you pay the the football players at you know Alabama more than you play the football players at Troy or you know like in the same state? Because obviously, if you do that, then you're you know it's an influential factor to to the recruiting process even more. Um, it's very messy. I think that becomes dangerous if that happens. I think it has to be even throughout Troy, Alabama, Boise State, Florida State, Ohio State, Texas, Akron. It has to be the same. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I do. I, You know, pay, you have to pay all the athletes, all the student athletes. There's no question about it. I don't think that they get paid as much as college football or college basketball. It's just simple, simple fact that, you know, they don't generate as much. They may be the more successful team, but they don't generate as much. And here's another factor that a lot of people don't uh, really talk about. And I may get resistance for saying this, but I believe it's absolutely true, is that when you when you look at the makeup of college football players, and I mean, maybe I'm just looking at my team, but I've talked to players at other places, and I know players from other teams. When you look at the makeup of those players, a lot of these players are coming from very difficult backgrounds, very difficult. I mean, they, they are it for their families. And if they don't make it, like the, the, the family trajectory, 
trajectory stays low or even maybe drops down if you're looking at a, a graph of their family line. And so since they are that, and since they come from these places, you know, I just, I just feel like it would behoove them, it would benefit them even more so than maybe a kid who, and this is not to generalize, but I'm just, just, I'm just putting off my experiences, a kid who has played golf his whole life, had enough money or family had enough money or put in a good enough resources to, to uh, play golf at country clubs growing up and now is playing at Florida State or Duke or something like that. You know, maybe his, he's not in the same position economically as, like I said, this kid from inner city Miami who has nothing, absolutely nothing, but the clothes on his back and the issued gear that Florida State gives him. That's what he wears every day to school because he has nothing else. Um, so, you know, that's, that's harder to do. There's no question. That would be harder to cipher, you know, to kind of siphon through. Um, but I think that is a part of the narrative and it needs to be a part of the discussion. You know, it's, it's a very messy discussion, too. I know this from, you know, on social media. Anytime you even, from my perspective, either comment on a story or even, you know, retweet a story that gets into the issue of pay for play. And a lot of times I'm sitting looking at some of the people commenting and going, first of all, that money's not coming out of your pocket, meaning the person, you know, some of the people who, with the blowback and talking about it. It's like, I don't know if they even know where the money goes for, to. You know, and so, but that's the reaction a lot of times is it comes back and like I've seen like Desmond Howard's pretty outspoken proponent of it as well as Rod Gilmore. And I know I've seen, you know, I kind of look at the, you know, the threads beneath it. I'm like a lot of the people who are getting pissed off about the thought of paying college athletes, the reaction sometimes will be like, well, I worked two jobs in college. Nobody, you know, I did this. I didn't get academic support or nobody pay, you know, is the idea that, okay, they can go to Canada if they want, if they don't like this, the model or whatever. It just, it creates a very, very odd set of reactions, I think, to it. Like I, like I said, I, I have no problem with it if they could work out a model, which it makes sense. But some of the people who seem to be the ones most offended by it, at least on social media, and maybe that's just the nature of social media and Twitter, people just kind of want to be pissed off. But it's very curious how they kind of how they kind of respond to it. And I'm sure you've seen some of that because I know that, you know, you've, you've chimed in on some causes or some issues that can be controversial. And you see, you know, a lot of people, a lot of your Florida State fans who follow you probably don't agree with a lot of things you say. And maybe that's, maybe that's healthy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, you know, social media can be very difficult uh, if you have a thin skin. Uh, one thing from my inspiration, academic inspiration, Ben Carson, that he said during one of the Republican debates was that, uh, you know, if you want to see the division in America, just look at the comment section on any article and you'll see racist epithets. You'll see people attacking other people. You'll see people not even talking about the article and really talking about each other uh, in a, again, very vitriolic um, kind of way. Um, and that's, um, and that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. Uh, you know, maybe some of it comes from jealousy. Maybe some of it comes that you have these young players who are been physically gifted, talented, um, you know, incredibly, almost like superhuman, supernatural skills that uh, who are you know benefiting from TV coverage and thirty thousand Instagram followers, and you know, soon going to have a big contract. And you know, these people who like sports but were never gifted with those kind of qualities. Um, feel a certain kind of way about that. Maybe there's some jealousy and envy that, that comes into play there. I'm not exactly sure. You have to ask you know, those people, but I'm sure they'll never give you a, an, an honest answer. But uh, yeah, the comments section and social media can be very, very dangerous. 
I want to get back to the Ben Carson thing for a minute. So when you were back with the Steelers, I remember it was during a training camp. We went out to dinner, and I was kind of not pushing you on the idea, but like said, okay, somewhere down the road, you know, you're going to end up in politics because you know a lot of political people. I mean, at the time, some of these people now who I know who they are, there were people that uh, had been supportive of you or you had had developed relationships with. This is going back, I want to say, am I right, Jed Bush, Marco Rubio back years ago? Yes. So, and obviously Ben Carson, the groundbreaking surgeon, ended up uh, in the smack dab in the middle of the presidential race. Uh, I would make the case that you are much more polished and thoughtful than a lot of people who end up in the middle of politics. Uh, you've also hit a cross section of a lot of different people in your uh, travels and in your experiences. I know you, you're going to embark on this journey now at Harvard in, in, in Massachusetts to go to a childhood dream. How far off do you think that would be? I mean, is that something that you could envision down the road 20 years from now or something that you could see yourself in, in politics or, or trying to impact people that way? I, you know, I've, I've prayed on it and I've considered it certainly. Um, you know, I, I think that politics and being a policymaker can shape generations and uh, as you know, Bruce, you've known me for a long time, I've always tried to have a, a big vision and try to help as many as I possibly can or do things to inspire as many as I can. Neurosurgery is something that I'm passionate about. It's my purpose. It's my calling. I can save a life on operating table or help save a life on operating table with the help of a great team and then do some groundbreaking research uh, that could you know, move the field forward even more. And then I could perhaps speak on issues that can do the same thing. I believe politics gives you uh, a platform similarly or even greater. And I think that's probably why Ben Carson um, went that route, uh, that to create change and shift the dynamic for generations. Um, that is, it's a, again, a very humbling privilege to be able to do something like that. Right now, do I see it for myself? No, but maybe down the line, will it become clearer? Maybe, or maybe it won't. Uh, maybe I'll get into uh, such a rhythm with with neurosurgery and advocating for issues on a global level of neurosurgery uh, that you know really shapes and carves a niche for me um, that does maybe even more than politics does. So uh, I'm not exactly sure right now. You're right, um, Jeb Bush and President Bill Clinton, and now Ben Carson and. Uh, Jesse Jackson and a few other figures who have been um, politically motivated uh, are friends of mine, Bill Bradley. Uh, but um, you know, I just I just have to keep my keep my head down and keep driving right now to be the best neurosurgeon I possibly could be. Uh, and then as we look up later on and we see that opportunity present itself, maybe we do it or maybe we stay where we are. So I guess I have to give you a better answer um, in a, f a few years. Do you pay attention to the political climate now that's been going on in the last couple of years? Are you pretty, I know you're busy, but do you still keep an eye on things pretty closely? Yeah, as, as much as possible, certainly. Um, especially issues that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to, very, very sensitive to, um, including ones that talk about disenfranchised people, um, you know, the mass incarceration or the health disparities that happen with people who are black or brown or poor, um, with police brutality, with, with things that, you know, when I think about, um, you know, my favorite Bible verse, it's in Matthew twenty-five forty. Inasmuch as ye have done for the least of these, my brethren, ye have done unto me. And that's Jesus saying, 
to his disciples that the least of these are the ones that we need to, to, to really care for. And so the people who are, again, poor and disenfranchised and disadvantaged and kind of placed in an obscure category, um, you know, that, that, that matters to me. You know, I have a foundation that works on foster kids and Native Americans, and these are the groups that have kind of been ostracized. Uh, I speak a lot and mentor young black boys and tell them that, yes, you can be great too, regardless of the fact that, you know, the media or other people may tell you differently. Um, you, you have an opportunity to, to be successful. My parents left the Bahamas because um, they had that vision of us being successful in this country, a country in abundance of resources. So I try to stay uh, connected to what's happening, the political climate, uh, but mostly, you know, I, I try to, um, you know, work through my foundation and then work through my own personal goals and personal career to be um, a pseudo beacon of hope for, for young people who may see my story and draw inspiration from it. What kind of influences and things would it take to get you, you know, to, to come in and say, okay, these are the things I can change. These are the resources I can kind of marshal. Because I said, you know a lot of people that your average 30-year-old former football player or even doctor, you just know a lot of people. I mean, your, your Rolodex is big. You tap into so many different people um, and have these experiences. So, you know, are those discussions you, you've had before or is it just kind of like something in the back of your mind? So I've, I've had these discussions before, I have, but I, I definitely, Bruce, I, I want to be an expert at something, right? I want to be, I want to have something that when they say, okay, who is Myron Rolt? Well, he's a fantastic neurosurgeon. He's a great physician and he heals people. You know, I, I'd like that to be it and say, okay, we can put, we can put that on him. Boom, there he is. He's a great thinker. He's a great leader. He's a, he was a great football player when he played, but right now, you know, he's a great neurosurgeon. And so that's, that's the, the immediate goal, but it's, it's not lost upon me. To, to access some of these resources that you, as you mentioned, or some of these people, um, to mobilize, you know, initiatives that, that could help. Uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly what it would take. I mean, uh, would, would, it, would it take a, a calling from somebody to say, okay, Myron, you know, I think you have what it takes to do this. Would it take, you know, one event that hits very close to home for this to happen? I, I'm not exactly sure, but, but know that when the call does come, I'm willing to answer it. And I think when that day comes, uh, as you said, there's several different people who I can pass the ball to, and we can pass it forth, pass it back and forth to each other uh, to kind of score and get it done. And um, you know, I'm looking forward to it when that happens. Do you get recruited a lot by people to kind of have you on their side, so to speak? I do, I do. You know, to to advocate for for their cause, or um, you know, to try to um, you know even just give a speech or uh, just be on be on their side uh, is obviously something that I'll have to. You know, research and know uh, because, again, and I, I hate to harken back to the Bible all the time, but uh, you know, it's a part of who I am, and you know that. But the Bible says that a good name is worth more than riches and rubies and, and pearls and and all these good these good riches. So, you know, I, I, if if there's a cause uh, that I can really get behind, that I know, that I research, that I, that I think um, it resonates with me, it moves me, um, it burns a fire in me, and, and and I hear that voice inside of me saying. You ought to do something about this, my. And then there's no question that I, that I'll move forward. I've, I've moved for causes of Native Americans, for causes of foster kids, for causes of black kids, for causes of you know young kids in my native country, the Bahamas. Uh, you know, so I'm willing to do these things. I even marched in the International Women's Day uh, a couple of years ago uh, because you know I, I recognize that women are 
are amazing. And, uh, you know, my mother being so strong and resilient, um, leading our family from in her own style, with her own way, uh, it did a lot for all of us. So, yeah, um, if the call uh, if the call comes, like I said, I'd be willing to answer it. But for right now, I need to be a good physician, a good doctor, take care of people, be an expert at that. When people, my peers in neurosurgery say, you know what, my role, he's a good doctor, and he's a good man too, but he's a really good doctor, for sure. So you're pretty much locked up for at least another dozen years, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, well, seven, for sure. That's seven years of neurosurgery, and then I went to do pediatric want- neurosurgery, like Dr. Carson and like Dr. Storm from, um, from CHOP. And so that's another year of a fellowship somewhere. So that's eight, and then you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it for at least a couple of years, right? Because you wouldn't just do all this work and then. That's correct. So let's that's say it's. Yeah. And, I'm, and, I'm, and again, I'm not sure where, that, where that's going to be. Uh, I wouldn't mind coming back down to Florida, being close to the Bahamas, being close to my family, but uh, we'll see. Do you still do some, I don't call it mission work, but I, I felt like there was stuff you were trying to get established in the Bahamas for a while. How's that going? It's going really well. Uh, we do a Play for Progress National Student Athlete Workshop. We take kids from Abaco, um, Bimini, Eleuthera, Exuma, uh, Grand Bahama, all the family islands, and we bring them together to teach them about how they can use sports to uh, increase uh, their life as a leader and as a student. Um, we're also doing something called the Pompeii Council, which is basically the Bahamas version of TED Talk. So I'm going to bring in all of our Rhodes Scholar um, you know, network to try to uh, inspire the Bahamas on issues that are pertinent to the Bahamas and on a more global level. So we've we had invitations out to Senator Cory Booker, uh, to Rachel Maddow, to Susan Rice, to Bill Bradley, Pat Hayden, Tom McMillan, uh, some of, and, and even people who are my, my contemporaries. Aisha Saad, you know, she's going to be a, a lawyer studying at Yale right now. Um, Abdul El Saeed, um, you know, uh, he's running for governor of Michigan. So um, yeah, so we have a lot of work, a lot of plans for the Bahamas. It's a small country uh, with a big bite. And a big bark, and uh, it's one of the best little countries in the world, if not the best. So uh, it means a lot to me to, to do uh, good philanthropic work there. All right. Well, I've kept you a long time, so I won't uh, I won't keep you any longer. I appreciate you joining us. What's the best way people can follow you? Uh, so yeah, uh, Twitter just at uh, Myron Roll, uh, Instagram at Myron L Roll, and then on Facebook Myron Roll. So it's, it's not very hard to find. I have a website too, RollFoundation.org. Uh, they can look up uh, any of the philanthropic initiatives, and I, I blog on there every once in a while, so to keep uh, people updated on what's happening. The next move for me, like I said, is graduation, May 20th, and then uh, June 15th is the official start date at Massachusetts General Hospital. So excited about that, man. Uh, Bruce is going to be good. Got to get my scars. Got to get my scars and my hat and my, um, my winter coat, but it'll be good. Are you out of the whole ascot phase? Is that is that gone? No, no, it's still here. It's still here. It's, 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 it exists, and it's actually thriving. It's actually thriving. <laughs> how often do you get, uh, this is one other thing, how often do you get some of the people who've been around you a lot who see you pop up on TV or somewhere and go, that's not how Myron really sounds? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Like, my, my, a couple of my best friends will say that. Man, I'm like, man, you got to give me a shout out and tell them what's really going on. I'm like, no, man, look. They get the different Myron. They got the road Scholar Myron. They get the Rhodes Scholar Myron. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. You, you've known me since, what, 03, 04. So, you know, you know, you know. Uh, I, yeah, you get the Jersey Myron. is a little different than the road Scholar Ascot Myron. <laughs> the chill Myron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
relaxed a lot. That's good. That's good. Yeah, man. So uh, good, man. I, I appreciate appreciate you having me on. This is um this is a great opportunity. Thanks thanks for having me. All right, Myron. I will uh I will talk to you soon. All right. Be good. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.